1: invite all those who are able to stand for our Scripture reading this morning out of respect for God's Word and in with with solidarity for Christians around the world. Our reading comes to us today through the power of the Spirit from Psalm 122. Let us attend to the wisdom of the Word of God. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was de- decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there, for there the thrones for judgment were set up. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God will seek your good. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
0: Once again, those who are able are invited to stand for our second lessons. We have a couple here coming from the New Testament. From the Gospel of Luke, from the letter to the Ephesians, and then the Beatitudes that we will look at this morning from Matthew. So, uh, first, turning to the Gospel of Luke, we are going to hear these words from um, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. He prophesies when the Lord has loosed his lips and has he is able to uh, prophesy that uh, that God has given to to uh, to his wife and to him. A son out of their barrenness. And so these are the words that he, uh, that he exclaims. I'm going to start back in 68, and we'll jump down uh, eventually to, uh, to the two verses listed in, in our bulletin. Listen to God's Word. So Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, skipping down to 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. And to verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God when the day shall dawn upon us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet, into the way of peace. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll turn over to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in the second chapter. These words of powerful reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles by the cross. And Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law of the commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one people in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then from the Gospel of Matthew, we continue our series in the Beatitudes. We hear Jesus say to us this morning, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, these are the Sunday mornings on uh, the beginning of a spring break and a, uh, a wet Sunday morning. These are the Sundays when the preachers stand up on the chancel and in the pulpit and they look out and say, now these are the real Christians. <laughs> so we're preaching to the choir this morning, right? No, but also these, I, I appreciate that you've come out this morning. It's not easy on these kind of mornings. But I, I also appreciate the fact that on these very mornings that I realize that there are going to be people who, for whatever reason, succumbing to the, the weakness of the flesh or, the, or whatever it is, they're going to say, I'm going to stay home this morning. And maybe just by chance, they're going to say, well, I'll go to, church. I'll go to uh, TV church. I'll go to couch church. And so maybe there are people who decided to play hooky this morning who are watching, who might not ordinarily be with us. And I hope Gary Cook has this camera on right here so that I can talk to those people who may be with us and did not know that God had in store for them to be in a worship service today. And so we want to welcome you as well. And we're glad that you're here by the Spirit of God. Will you pray with me, please? Loving God, thank you for calling us here by whatever means, by... uh, by seeing us through uh, the the desire when we heard the rain on the roof to sleep in or to read uh, the paper a little longer, enjoy a second cup. Thank you for pushing us through all of that, pushing us out of our pajamas into the shower to bathe, to dress. Thank you for moving us to get in our vehicles and drive to the church and be here with brothers and sisters in the faith in your house to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed, to take it into our lives and to live it out in the week to come. Thank you by your Holy Spirit that some have been moved to turn on the TV and spend this hour with, uh, with us in worship. And we are grateful for the work of your Spirit in that way as well. But Lord, what, whatever work your Spirit has done thus far, we need you to do some more work in us. And that is to surrender our wills to your perfect will, to open our minds to the wisdom and the life-giving truth of your Word, that, uh, that we would put away everything else that might want to distract us and that we would listen well and in a supernatural way what it is You have to say to us today. For Your, your Word is active. It is living. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So speak to us Your truth today, we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today is a twofer. The sermon title is Blessed Are Peacemakers. But before we get to peacemakers, we have to get to pure in heart. We have to do the Beatitudes in order. And I don't want to skip over pure in heart, so allow me a few moments to dwell on the Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then we will go to blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. May I do that? All right. Because uh, in order to cover the beatitudes that Jesus imparted to His disciples and to the crowd on that hillside above the Sea of Galilee, outside the little fishing village of Capernaum, to understand this teaching that Jesus imparted, we have to take these beatitudes in order and we have to double up this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. So to understand what Jesus has said, I want to ask you to listen fast because there's a lot to be heard this morning. To understand what Jesus means when He speaks of this way of blessedness, of being pure in heart, this this way of contented joy, of of fullness in God's Spirit by being pure in heart, we'll have to begin at the end of the line to understand it. So I want us to think about seeing God before we talk about being pure in heart. So we'll start… From the back and work to the front. In John, the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the 18th verse, Jesus says these words, no one has ever seen God, which seems contradictory of what Jesus is saying this morning in this beatitude. The pure in heart will see God. Well, we know of the five senses that sight is the most dominant one, yet there are different kinds of sight, are there not? You can see a sunrise, and you can see in your mind if I tell you that two plus two equals four. You can can see an object. You can understand reason, but there's a third type of sight here that that is more than a material object or an abstract thought. This sight is of a spiritual nature. It is the ability to see the one who is invisible when we close our eyes. It's a different kind of seeing. Some years ago, I was told a story about students who uh, at a college were attending a forum on the Christian faith, and the person who was facilitating this gathering asked the students in that place, how many of you in this room believe in God? And I imagine that if I ask you that question, every hand in the place would go up, as it did on that day. And then the leader asked a follow up question. To how many of you in this room is God real? And there were only a couple of hesitant hands that went up at that question. In this way, seeing God is to emphasize the ability to know God in our experience of God, believing in God. And knowing God is real are two different experiences. To know God is to see God. I've always loved the story of the English hostess. Years ago, before TV, before all things digital, this woman was having a a, a dinner party. And as was fairly normal um, custom during that time, There happened to be a well-known actor present at that dinner gathering, and so the hostess after dinner asked if this gentleman would entertain. That's what they did. And she asked him if he would recite the 23rd Psalm, and so the actor uh, obliged. And he stood up, and with perfect diction, with well-modulated voice, and with proper intonations, he gave a polished recitation. And when he was finished, he was rewarded with some warm applause. And then for some reason, the hostess called upon another gentleman to do the same. A rather unpretentious gentleman who was unknown to really those outside of that circle of people gathered there. And she asked if he would be willing to also recite the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd's psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And so after some cajoling, he agreed. And it was with nothing of a practiced art, with no skill of a public speaker, but only the earnestness of his own heart did he recite the shepherd's psalm. And when he finished... The listeners were deeply moved. And there was only silence in the room. And the same question was in the minds of all who were there. What is the difference between these two? And the experienced actor stood up and answered the question when he remarked with these words, I know the song this man knows the shepherd this is what jesus means by seeing god it is the pure in heart that see god jesus says and the word pure appears 28 times in the new testament 10 of those times it is translated as clean as if a piece of linen, of cloth were washed clean and removed of all of its soil and dirt because cleanliness and dirt cannot coexist together. God is pure. And our minds, our lives filled with dirty thoughts has no room for God. And so we ask the question, what is it that we fill our minds with? What are the books that we read? What is the programming that we watch? What are the images that we gaze upon? What are the stories that we tell? When the lenses of our mind's eye are dirtied and soiled, we cannot see God. It is for the pure, the clean-hearted, who see God. And when we speak of heart here, we're not talking about that piece of our anatomy, that that muscle that, that works without us even telling it to, to pump blood to all of our extremities and keep us alive. No, when Jesus speaks of being pure in heart, He is talking about the wholeness of the entire self, the focus of the entire individual, the focus of life, if you will. And Jesus says this curious thing, Jesus said that it is the harlots and the tax collectors that will precede the self-righteous into God's realm, into the kingdom of heaven. For it was the harlots and the tax collectors who had come to know themselves as single-minded in this way. They became sincere because they knew their sin. And their motives had become unmixed and pure in their seeking after God. And there is an honesty, there is a pureness in knowing the only way is one sees as pure a holy God. It is only in that way of of cleanness and purity in our lives that we see a holy God. I'm thinking of King David dripping with the grime of his own sin of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murderous plot against her husband Uriah. And when he is confronted with his sin, he writes in Psalm 51, My sin is ever before me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For my sin is red as crimson. Wash me, Lord, whiter than snow. Take not Your Holy Spirit away from me. David, in this way, confronted with his own sin, became not one who was divided, but he sought one thing. And the one thing that David sought was to see the face of his Savior. Here, there is no worry, there is no bitterness in this purity of thought and desire, no anger, no envy. It is washed. It has all been washed away by love. And the hell of a guilty conscience in this way is gone because it has been wiped clean by the amazing grace of God. In this way, David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. David is credited with writing the 23rd Psalm and many others. He's also credited with writing the 27th Psalm, one of my favorites. And in Psalm 27, David says this, Thou hast said, Lord, seek my face. And my heart says to Thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And he finishes the psalm by saying this, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of of the living. And Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. This past week, after the elections in Israel, there was a columnist named Ben Caspit, and he wrote an article in, a, in an Israeli newspaper titled Two States. And he was not referring to the left's two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian question, but of Israel's own cultural divide. He writes, Israel is split between left and right, between Bibi and anti-Bibi, the nickname for Netanyahu. Israel is split between aspirations for normalcy and aspirations for territory. And then he went on. Two states, two styles, two worldviews split once again. How clearly this describes the state of things in Israel. How clearly this describes the state of things in our world. How clearly this describes the state of things in our country, in our community. How clearly this describes the state of things in our church. The divide between haves and have-nots. The divide between Christians and Muslims. The divide between Republicans and Democrats. The divide between splossed and no splossed the divide between my way and the wrong way. And they cried, peace, peace. And the prophet said, there is no peace. And if ever we needed to understand this beatitude, it is now. And so we delve into it for the next few precious moments. And as we do so we need to be reminded that this 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 beatitude is not a magic bullet. It is not a secret potion. It is not a special elixir. It is not the cure for all that ails us brothers and sisters. But it is part of these teachings of Jesus, the core of the core of his teachings. Teachings that Jesus gives us that we need to be reminded need to be taken all together because if we just pull this out and talk about peacemakers, we've missed what Jesus has been building on week after week after week, statement after statement. They must be taken together and we must see them together. The way of blessedness comes from being poor in our own ego, we learned. The way of blessedness comes from mourning and aching and being in grief over the way things really are. The way of blessedness comes from being meek and gentle, which is a strength that is clothed in velvet. It is about being hungry and thirsty and yearning for the right things, the right relationship, the justice of God. And it is, it, it, we know this way when we know mercy so that we might give mercy. We know the way of blessedness as we are pure in heart and thereby we are able to see God. And only then are we, be, are we able to talk about peacemaking. And the first thing we need to understand about being a peacemaker is this, is you cannot give what you don't have. You can't give what you ain't got. And if there is no peace in us, there is no peace from us. And peace depends and begins more with our inward condition than it does with our outward circumstances. There are two words here that we must consider when we talk about peace. The first is the Greek word irene, which is the irenic person, the one who is peace-loving. But also there is the the, the Hebrew word shalom, which is familiar to many of us. The Hebrew word shalom that we find in the name of the holy city itself, Jerusalem. We find this word shalom there which means a secure habitation, a foundation of peace, Jerushalom. And shalom is never only an absence of trouble. Shalom is not an armed truce or a ceasefire, or an armistice between countries, or within a home. Shalom is what makes for the highest good. When we greet someone as is the greeting among the Israelites, shalom means not an absence of evil, but a presence of all things good. And Jesus said shalom to His disciples in the upper room. And when Jesus said, peace I give to you, He did not say that with this peace comes an absence of trouble, my brothers and sisters. But what Jesus was saying was that in this peace you will find the enjoyment and the fullness of all things that are good and right. And the difference between a peace lover then and a peacemaker, the difference between keeping the peace and making peace, the difference between burying the hatchet is finding true peace, which is pursuing the good. And peace is a positive thing. And peacemaking is is active participation in the promotion of peace, of what is best for all. And so what methods can you and I use in a practical way to fulfill our role of being peacemakers? Well, first of all, Nathan alluded to it in the children's sermon, just don't stir people up. Becca, help keep the peace. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, so far as you are able, live at peace with one another. And sometimes there are those in the family, in a social club, in a church, in a community that find a little burning ember, and oh, how expertly they can fan it up and stir it up into a big old flame and enjoy the heat, and destruction. The wisdom of Proverbs says, the one who meddles in a quarrel, not his or her own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. I think that's kind of like, let sleeping dogs lie. If it's not your dog, if it's not your quarrel, if it's not your stuff, stay out of it. Because if you grab the dog by the ears, you're going to get bit or there's going to be a huge commotion and there is no peace. And peacemakers make peace by refusing to break the peace. Proverbs also says, a soft answer turns away wrath. A wise man said, there are two handles to everything. There is the handle, he wrongs me. And there is the handle, he is my brother. He said, we only need to grab hold of that thing by one of those handles. He is my brother." I'm reminded of the story of Robert E. Lee, who was roundly criticized during the Civil War by one of his generals, General Whiting. And as the story goes, General Lee was brought in to talk to President Jefferson Davis. And in the the midst of that consult, President Davis asked General Lee what he thought about General Whiting, who had been maligning Lee and speaking all kinds of negative against him. And Lee, when he was asked of General Whiting, he spoke in high terms, one of the most able generals that I know. And after he left that consultation, one of his officers who was there in that conversation asked why, knowing all the things that Whiting was saying about him, did he speak thus? And General Lee said, I understood the President to be asking my opinion of Whiting, not Whiting's opinion of me. This is in the spirit of peacemaking. This is in the spirit of Christ Himself to turn the other cheek, to show that love is patient and kind and love bears all things. The peacemaker is the peacekeeper, but that's not all, because sometimes the peacemaker must break the peace. And this may sound like double talk here. and I, I'm contradicting myself. But like it or not, we must read the fullness of the text to understand the depth of what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you also said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword means dispeace. The sword means the division of two things. The sword is an instrument of clarity, not an instrument of war. And Jesus goes on to say, I have come to set man against father and daughter, against mother. A person's foes will be those of his or her own household. Wow. It sounds like a contradiction. And the only way to solve this paradox, to bring back the real meaning of peace, which is more than the absence of trouble, is to remember that peace is seeking the presence of what is good, which is right in our relationship with God and with one another. Peace is more than tranquility. Peace is based on justice and right relationship. For it is true, nothing is ever settled until it is settled right. There is no peace as long as there is wrong relationship between people. Seeking peace at any price is not being a peacemaker. Seeking peace at any price may leave us with no real peace, and I wish it weren't this way. An infection is not covered by a band-aid to be healed. It must be lanced to know healing. A cancer is not cured by simply rubbing a salve or a cream on it. No, a cancer must be radiated deep within. It must be treated with harsh chemical. It must be cut out by scalpel for the body to know healing. And in this light and in this truth, we can better see and understand about what is happening today. In the book of Acts, the followers of the crucified and risen Christ were described as those early disciples who were turning the world upside down. They brought a sword of of clarity. They were dividing truth from falsehood, light from dark, God's Word from human wisdom. And it was not just to disrupt for the sake of disruption but because the truth was being suppressed and had been aborted. For peacemakers know something is wrong and it must be addressed. Like Jeremiah, the great prophet who spoke to God's wayward people, when even the priests and the prophets were preaching falsehood, were chasing after idols, were infected with greed, and marred by sin, Jeremiah said, They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And all this brings us back to what we said at the outset we cannot give what we do not have. We can't give what we ain't got. If there is no peace within, it cannot take root beyond ourselves. And we are not able to manufacture peace. Not in our neighborhoods, not in our community, not in the church, not even in ourselves. For until we understand that peace comes from without, that is a gift that is given to us. Until we are ministered to by God's peace, are we able to minister that peace to others. And we receive this gift of God's peace by accepting God's sacrificial gift, reconciling us to God and to one another through His Son, Jesus Christ. In our study text that we are using during the season of Lent on the Beatitudes, it says, sin is the one and only disturber of the peace. And sin breaks the tender law of love. Sin disrupts the life of the human soul, the bond of the community under the reign of God. Sin is the great enemy of peace. And the solution that God gives us from this sin, this strife, this violence, this conflict, comes at a terrible price. For the feet of the messenger of peace, the Prince of Peace himself, are wounded feet. They are pierced hands and side that He brings to us. For Jesus Christ Himself was willing to pay the huge price of our sin so that we might know His peace and the immeasurable immensity of God's love. Through Jesus Christ, God was pleased to reconcile Himself to all things through the blood of the cross, the Scripture tells us. And the cross makes clear the power and the beauty of God's self-giving love. Yes, Jesus Christ is our peace, and in His face we see the picture, the perfect picture of God's love. A story and then a quote, and I'm through. The story is of Karl Barth who could be said was one of the greatest theologians of this past century, certainly the greatest Reformed theologian. And Karl Barth came to the United States one time late in his career, and he went to Union Theological Seminary in Richmond where he lectured to that student body in German with a translator. But after his lectures, they went down and gathered with some students in a refectory hall. And there in that Q&A session, one student raised a hand and asked dr bart in all of your books you have written dozens of books thousands of pages upon the christian faith can you tell us in just a few words what the christian what you have found to be the essence of the christian faith and dr bart was silent he reached into his pocket he pulled out his pipe tobacco and slowly and dramatically with great deliberation packed his pipe he lit it And as he lit it, the smoke enveloped his head like he was Moses on Mount Sinai. But then when the smoke cleared from his face, he looked at those students and he said, yes, I believe that I can. I would sum up all of my work with these words. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And here, this great thinker of the Christian world boiled it down into the simple words of a child's song about this great love that we know in Jesus Christ and by His Word. And this quote from Augustine, if you remember nothing else about this sermon, remember this where St. Augustine said, the God who we see shining in the face of Jesus Christ loves each one of us as if there were no other in the world to love. God loves you so much to the the degree as if you were the only one in the world to love. And God loves all of us as He loves each. And the Scripture says, see what love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God? And we are. And we are. Amen.